Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. We're back. Oh, my God. It was way too long without talking about all this shit. There's too many things to go over now. Oh. Thanksgiving was a long break. Have we ever done a break that long? It's been two weeks now. That's crazy. Uh, that's why we're up to 100 episodes now. Yay! Yay! That's crazy. Ooh. Yay. Congratulations, guys. Let's congratulate ourselves. Yes. I'm congratulating <laughs> us. I'm going to drink some beer. Hold on. on that note, it's Barstool Politics. I'm your host. Host? Host. That's what I said. Uh, Nick McGuire, uh, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and uh, Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. It's good to see you. We haven't seen you in so long. It's been a while. No one sees you that's listening, so I don't know why I said that, but I haven't seen you. Um, and then we have our senior legal analyst, Tom Cavanaugh, with us today, too. Yay! It's such a good day. It's <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> oh, my God. Before we get started... All the stuff that you guys know and love. Uh, if you like the podcast, uh, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, want to know what we're up to, uh, any potential upcoming things that we're doing, maybe some interesting little developments in the next few weeks or something. Um, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. The uh, beers that we try, you can find on the Untapped app on iOS and Android, so download that. Uh, the podcast, um, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play Music, Stitcher, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, so definitely check that out. Uh, yeah, and then like we've talked about for a while now, we partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a, uh, a real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, super fun. We use it during the midterms. We continue to use it to inform us on things that are going on that we talk about every week. Um, so definitely check it out, uh, predicted.org. What's great for our listeners is uh, if you open up an account with uh, Predicted, open up a new account, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, they will match that $20. So $40 in $20 in free money to use on Predicted, uh, which is great. So definitely check that out. Uh, use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. Uh, and have some fun with that. There's we always do. Shares of uh, Manafort getting a pardon were 11 cents a share yesterday. I still have those. Yeah. I'm hanging on to those. I, 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 Something's I think, gonna happen. I think they're gonna go up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. Mm. We'll yeah, go lot, ahead, Dick. No, lots of stuff. Um, yeah, we're gonna focus on, we've got Tom with us, so lots of um, interesting legal developments, to say the least. 
uh, over the past few weeks. Um, yeah, let's just dive let's right in, it. I guess. All right. So let's start with Donald Trump versus John Roberts. So, so last week we witnessed a truly remarkable development when the President of the United States and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court publicly battled over the federal judiciary. This all began when the President complained that an Obama judge from the Ninth Circuit had ruled against his administration's asylum policy. <laughs> that prompted Chief Justice John Roberts to issue, issue a highly unusual rebuke, declaring, quote, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. Roberts also noted that an independent judiciary is something we should all be thankful for. Trump was having none of this and quickly responded over Twitter, stating, quote, sorry, Chief Justice Roberts, but you do indeed have Obama judges. Trump's attack on the Ninth Circuit was apparently the last straw for Roberts. Now, we're lucky to have our senior legal analyst, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, here today to help us think through this extraordinary situation. Why don't we start with the Trump-Roberts dynamic, but then we can explore elements of the asylum case as well as the evolving situation on the border and why Phil is so supportive of tear-gassing people. Uh, it's just fun. It's just good that's, fun. That's right. <laughs> so, Tom, what should we make of this squabble between the leaders of two of our three branches of federal government? Well, imagine my disappointment when I got the outline this week. <laughs> Apple was in front of the court in this spectacularly interesting antitrust case. <laughs> Uh, there is the plight of the dusky frog, uh, one of the first uh, opinions of the term, in which uh, John Roberts talked sort of uh, rhapsodically about uh, the frog uses its forearms to cover its eyes when it's hiding. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about contempt of cop this week in a case from Alaska, which John Roberts described as 10,000 drunks out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and what do I have but a Trump Twitter war? <laughs> Not surprisingly. Oh. Well, so uh, I'll just leave those three cases for yeah. uh, a different time. Sure. Uh, it's no secret to anybody in this room or anybody who listens that I have enormous respect and admiration for uh, John Roberts. Um, it's probably also not a secret that I, I don't have as high a level of esteem <laughs> for the president. Um, but I, I think this whole thing is just kabuki, if you want to know mm -hmm. the truth. Um, John Roberts is justifiably worried about the reputation of the federal judiciary. So I think he thought he had to say something. I have my doubts about whether it was wise to do it uh, because I think most people hear these sorts of things from the president and say to themselves, oh, there he goes again. And in some ways, I think Roberts drew attention to it in a way that might not otherwise have uh, happened, but, but for Roberts' response. Um, that said, Trump said two things. And he's largely right about both of them. Uh, the first is, there are Obama judges, there are Bush judges, there are Clinton judges. And we all know this is true, not just in terms of who appointed them, but in terms of their judicial ideologies. If there weren't, there'd be no reason to filibuster. Mm -hmm. There'd be no reason for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to go back to work with three broken ribs <laughs> uh, because she's got to work the term out yeah. and maybe, maybe two more. Um, but we know these things are true. Lawyers forum shop to find judges and or justices, uh, well, judges or appellate judges, to try their cases in front of. So to pretend somehow that, uh, as Roberts is, they're robots who all, you know, sort of decide cases uh, without any sort of philosophy or ideology, I don't think makes sense. The second thing Roberts said, I'm sorry, uh, Trump said, and he's absolutely right about this, is that the Ninth Circuit is the most overturned circuit in America. 
There's been lots of press on this, and all of it has been really dumb, to be honest. Um, there are several circuits that were overturned at 100% rate over the last five years. In all of them, there were less than three cases. The Ninth Circuit, uh, by contrast, uh, just uh, I'll, I'll give you the last couple of years, last year had 15 cases in front of the court, 12 of which were overturned. Mm -hmm. The year before that, they had eight, seven of which were overturned. And the numbers look like that. So in terms of the really important thing, the absolute numbers, the Ninth is absolutely the most overturned circuit uh, in the country. It's not my uh, general uh, you know, disposition to come to Trump's rescue here, but I think we should be honest about what the Supreme Court and these appellate uh, courts are. They are filled with people with carefully developed lifetime judicial philosophies, and that's why they're nominated by presidents of different views. So uh, I, it kills me to say the following thing. I think Roberts was wrong. <laughs> and Trump was right. <laughs> so, I, I, um, I, I agree with everything you've said. I, my one maybe different take on it, and I'm kind of wondering what you think about this, <clears throat> is can't they both be right to some extent, which yeah. is that Trump is right. And that, I mean, it is, it's like the secret that we want to pretend, you know, this, this, the idea that judges aren't political or aren't, don't fall on the spectrum or whatever. They do. There's conservative judges, there's liberal judges, but it's also what Trump is doing is also really dangerous, which yeah. is when you, I mean, what he's doing is taking steps towards politicizing. He, he's making the claim or, or implying that the decisions are just based on politics. So there's a difference between saying they have a more conservative judicial philosophy or a more liberal judicial philosophy, but they're doing it in good faith, right? And it seems like what Trump is implying is that this is not in good faith. It's that there are political hacks or partisan hacks that are yeah. carrying out an agenda. Yeah. Um, and so in that, to that extent, he's not wrong, but it's dangerous what he's doing. I could understand why Roberts would be concerned. Yeah, I, I can too. Uh, that said, Jefferson repeatedly tried to provoke Chief Justice Marshall. Yeah. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. so this is not the first president that uh, denigrated the judiciary, that set himself up uh, in, in a sort of I'm the good guy, they're the bad guys uh, kind of way. But I, I, I'm with you, Phil. I, the way Trump does this questions good faith, and that feels different to me than uh, decisions being made by a judicial philosophy with which he disagrees. Uh, and, and I don't know, the dangerous might be too strong a word, but it certainly does undermine credibility. Do you, sorry, I'm cutting you off, Bill. I'm yeah, still talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that Roberts would have felt the need to respond to this if it hadn't been for the Kavanaugh hearings? Do you, I wonder how much of yeah. that and the, the sort of divisions and the accusations that, you know, Kavanaugh mm -hmm. made pretty partisan attacks in his, in his mm -hmm. hearing. I, I wonder if that hadn't all happened, if people weren't already talking about whether the court was in some way biased or, you know, if, if he wouldn't, if he would have been more comfortable just sitting back and, and letting it go. I wonder how much of that played out in Roberts' mind as he was figuring out whether he needed to respond or not feels like that had to be hugely important to him yeah hugely important to him uh, we've said at least each of the times i've been here that roberts is as much about the institution of the court as he has any particular is any particular decision they make and, and i think you're exactly right phil that uh, the kavanaugh hearing prompted from him a totally different mm -hmm. kind of response I, you can hear exasperation in his voice too, right? Yeah. This was this was one bridge too far. Mm -hmm. it, it felt like, and and even if what Trump said was factually 
largely true, and I'll stick with largely here, um, in tone and in timing, uh, it feels different than what has preceded it for a long time. There's nothing like this in the presidencies in modern American history that I can remember. At least since Nixon in terms of, yeah. Yeah. You know, this, this, this element of being political to me is fascinating because I think you're right. We would be naive to say that the court isn't political. But at the same time, the way in which they're political seems different mm-hmm. than our modern conver- – our, our general conversations about political. I mean, I think about these judges, and I, I may agree or disagree with certain judicial philosophies, but – would you say that a judge is going into making a decision? They're, they're not often driven by ideology. They're driven by a judicial philosophy. And it strikes me that is a, a really important distinction. Mm-hmm. And, and even though political actors may select judges based on those judicial philosophies, it doesn't make them political actors in that sense that, they, that, that the, the parties want them to be. I mean, I, I guess the question is when you, when you think about Roberts or anybody making these decisions – do you think political ideology is is seeping in? No. And in fact, and that's important, right? Yeah, one really interesting thing happened uh, last week, and that was that Justices Gorsuch uh, and Sotomayor uh, dissented from uh, a denial of cert on a Sixth Amendment claim. And, and I raise it just to say this. It was about confronting witnesses. It was a sort of routine criminal case that involved a drunk driver who uh, had the breathalyzer taken, a lab tech did the analysis of it, but a different one came to testify. And the question in front of the court, of course, is, is that really confronting uh, your accuser? And, and I, I raise this one because here are the two poles of the court, right? Mm-hmm. Sotomayor and, and Gorsuch agreeing with one another and uh, uh, doing so on constitutional grounds that uh, really were indistinguishable, irrespective of their judicial philosophies. So I, I, I continue to be the guy that says I've got huge faith in yeah. this institution and in John Roberts, but I think we should say out loud that there are uh, rocky road, there's a rocky road ahead if, if we keep pushing down this thing. The, the appearance of the Chief Justice and the President trading barbs is very troubling to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I, my guess is you won't hear another word from Roberts directed at uh, Trump for the rest of his administration. Uh, this was probably a one-time, uh, I'm going to stand up to a bully sort of thing, And I'm going to stand up on behalf of a federal judiciary that is uh, worthy of respect, whoever appointed them. Should should we? Sorry, Nick, were you going to say something? No, yeah, go ahead. Should we take the fact that Roberts said something as an indication of how seriously he takes this how big of a concern this is i you know i this is where i do european politics and i think about you know you know in 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 british politics the queen doesn't speak out on political matters except every now and then rarely she does Mm -hmm. and she doesn't have to say much because her speaking out says enough like it's it's that this is a big deal and I, I haven't really thought about that i've just thought well you know roberts i don't know why he decided to do this but should we take this as some indication of how concerned or how big of an issue this is for him? Or do you think this is just, I mean, it could be that following Kavanaugh, he feels the need to in some way defend the court. Mm -hmm. It could be that he sees the attacks on the judiciary as hugely significant and concerning. This was not a tweet from him. This was a speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, It appears as though they were prepared comments. So he certainly thought about this and made a judgment. I should say this, not in response to a question or something like that. 
it is important to say that the Chief Justice represents as an administrative uh, official all of the federal judiciary, and they regularly speak, and they regularly issue reports, and they often make demands of Congress. We don't have enough judges. You're not confirming them fast enough. The budget isn't big enough. The buildings aren't heated well enough, that sort of thing. <laughs> we never hear about those kinds of things because they aren't sexy in the same way this one is. Yeah. So I think it's a little bit less out of character for a chief justice to say this than it may appear because the public doesn't hear all the other things. That said, um, Roberts is clearly worried about Donald Trump. And I think Donald Trump is worried about John Roberts. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, in terms of the decisions he's made and in terms of the decisions he might make going forward. Um, I don't know that I'd categorize it as, mm -hmm. you know, we keep hearing about crises in America these days. Right. There's always, and I know, Phil, you didn't say this, but there's, there's always the constitutional crisis looming, right? <laughs> I don't think this is. I, uh, is Roberts worried? I think he is. Is, is, there, uh, is there anything more than a, in an appearance uh, sort of thing to worry about? I don't think so. But I could be wrong. I, I, you know, after having you on as as many times as we have, and and talking about the you know judges and and their mindset, I I firmly believe that at least currently they are, you know, honorable, principled people who are are sticking to their individual philosophies regardless of the politics that put them into those positions. What worries me in this particular case is that this is. I think you were right in saying this is something that we realistically have not seen in the better part of 40 years or ever at this point um, in this in this capacity, um, this kind of rancor and back and forth between the president and the chief justice or any member of the Supreme Court. This is a different animal. And mm -hmm. I think it's been two years, mm -hmm. and I th we've learned enough to know that you shouldn't engage with this guy there's no good there's just there's nothing good that can come out of it mm -hmm. and like you said I, I think Trump is worried about um, the Chief Justice and the rest of the court and their particular leanings and the decisions that they'll make and realistically that should be that's their statement that is the power that they have and they I, I don't I don't see while I understand the the want and need to evince you know this uh, thought that, you know, I'm, I'm protecting my colleagues and an institution and doing something that's positive, it's, there's just, there's nothing good that's going to come out of it, in my opinion. I think it, yeah. it turns something that shouldn't be politicized into something that is extremely political at that point. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. But if you're, if you're Roberts and Trump is saying this Ninth Circuit, it's all Obama judges. Don't worry until this gets to the Supreme Court court and my guys will take care of this. Like that's that turns the Supreme Court into a completely political issue. And I, I think you're right. And I'm not sure whether this was, was a good or bad thing to do by Roberts, but this has to be a huge fear of his that suddenly Trump is gonna start keep talking about and campaigning, look at the guys I put on the court, we're gonna get our decisions, mm -hmm. and then the legitimacy of this institution mm -hmm. is gone, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is something that's a deep fear for Roberts. Mm -hmm. It is a hard, it's a hard position because you're, you're right, Nick. You don't, you know, engaging with him is just, you know, feeding the troll, right? We've talked about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we have also, for the last two years, talked about this need for people to actually stand up and say this isn't normal, right? This right. is one of the critiques right. of the Republican Party is that there haven't been enough people, you know, and the ones who do, the Jeff Flakes, 
you know, they speak out. But anyway, um, so it's a hard situation because people do need to speak out and say this is not normal and this isn't appropriate. But speaking out also is in some way playing the game, you know, stooping to his level. Yeah, I know that's that's hard. I don't, if I were in his position, I don't know how I would navigate that. Yeah. His being Robert. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I personally hear that more people should speak out about it. I think, again, talking with you, Tom, and the discussions that we've had, this is the Supreme Court is a different animal. There are plenty of actors that should be speaking out, and some have, and but yeah, a lot more people need to do it. This is an institution that, at least in my opinion, and I, I think in, in a lot of people's opinions, is should be separate mm-hmm. from that particular fight. Um, I think, uh, from my perspective, that gives them more long-term legitimacy than getting into the political fray at this particular moment. Just like the Fed, right? And Trump attacked both of them in the last couple weeks. Mm -hmm. I think you're right, Nick. As I think about that, I think this is an an example of where uh, an unwillingness, for whatever reason, amongst Republican leadership to speak out is what puts Roberts in this position. Right. He should, ideally, Republican leaders would be saying this is not appropriate. The, the, you know, the, it should be someone other than John Roberts that's saying this. He shouldn't be the one that has to say it. That's mm-hmm. a good. Point. Well, and he, here's how they could say it: There's 32 uh, presidential judicial nominees awaiting confirmation as we speak. 14 percent of the entire federal judiciary is vacant right now. Those are astonishingly high numbers. Uh, At this point in the Obama administration, it was about 11. In uh, the Bush administration, it was about eight. Uh, If I was Mitch McConnell, I think what I'd say is we're trying to move these people through. I I don't know whether you'd say it uh, to the nation, but you should sure say it to the president who has an almost uh, unlimited capacity uh, to step on his own progress, Mm -hmm. right? They, They wanna try and push these people through probably during the recess, as many as they can, including the, uh, the successor to Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, and Trump just made it harder for them, mm-hmm. right? Because now they're, it's not justices and judges, it's Trump guys yeah. mm-hmm. and gals. Uh, it, it, it's just un- astonishing to me that he, he consistently does this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Makes his own work harder. Makes yeah. his own and everybody else is around him. Yeah. Should we jump to the asylum case for a little bit? Yes, please. So I want to hear about the tear gas and fill. That's right. 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 So, so what kind do you prefer? Is yeah. it like bear mace, or is it like apparently that kind that's better for kids? Yeah, that's kid friendly. Kid friendly. Yeah. The kids just didn't run into the mace, I, Nick. It would all I be fine. I, I agree I with that. Yeah. Tom, do you want to tell? Do you want to kind of summarize or tell us what the Ninth Circuit? So it was the case was brought there. Uh, and then it's so where the status of the case might be. Yeah, you can sum it up in one sentence. The judge said the president can't rewrite immigration law unilaterally, and immigration law provides for asylum. We have a definition of it. We have a process for providing it, and um, that's the law. And the law itself, we were looking at the other I sus- day. Incidentally, I suspect the Seventh Circuit, a more conservative one, would have said the same, same thing. Same thing. Because yeah, the law itself says that it, it doesn't doesn't depend on a port of entry or not, mm-hmm. the law itself. Mm-hmm. So this will work its way to the Supreme Court, likely, right? Or I don't know. Yeah. Uh, they've spoken on immigration issues in the past. I don't know if there's a new question here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a division of the circuits, so they don't have to reconcile, say, the Ninth and the Seventh Circuit. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have a question here that has never been answered. It has. Uh, as long ago as the court taking up the Arizona efforts at immigration control. So I, I have a suspicion it doesn't get there. And um, 
has to be resolved politically. Sure. In the in the truest sense of the word, politically, as opposed to judicially. That could be a bit more complicating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that seems to line up with I mean what you've talked about for a long time, which is that there's if there's problems, they need to be solved by yeah. lawmakers, not mm-hmm. by judges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I think the theory the judge was after in the ninth was some who seek asylum uh, are going to have to find very difficult routes into the country before they ask so that they aren't garden variety illegal border crossers. And I think what Trump's position is would be that because the vast majority of those who are asking for it don't get it, the judge isn't recognizing that there are an awful lot of people who are not legitimate asylum seekers and who didn't need the protection of they can sneak in at night or whatever to, to seek asylum. But that's a political question. Mm-hmm. It's not a judicial one. There's nothing novel about this. The numbers are really fascinating. So at the hearings right now, it's it's 80% of those that come in that have an, a preliminary hearing uh, get categorized as uh, worthy of a second hearing, right? So they're, they're allowed in. But then ultimately only 10% of those are actually granted asylum. Right. So it's a tiny, tiny percentage. And then the most, most recent uh, decision by the Trump administration, uh, apparently this negotiated with Mexico, is that Mexico is willing to hold these individuals until their cases are heard. They so walk would, that back. <laughs> well, Mexico has, yeah. yeah. Well, they're in the middle of a transition as well, so yeah. it's hard to know what's going to happen here. But I, it's, it's curious to me that Mexico would agree to this to say, oh, sure, we'll keep all of these individuals on the border until their day in court, and then we'll let them cross. And then, you know, when you say no or whatever, uh, then they'll come back. This is a curious development to me as well. I, I mean, from what I heard, those were the reports of that actually being institutionalized were fairly limited and almost immediately there was a rebuttal from the incoming uh, administration in Mexico saying no that's not going to happen or at least not in the way that they're talking about it we have no idea what they're talking about so I there could be some sort I don't think there's any sort of coalesced real deal currently sure I I, and realistically like I mean they've even said you know I think they offered asylum to a lot of these people at one point, especially around Tijuana. There's 20,000 manufacturing mm-hmm. jobs there that a lot of these people can take. So I, I, I don't know. It's such a, it's such a weird situation. I'm re- actually, I'm not that conflicted about it. But. Well, even for Mexico, because there's tremendous violence and, and drug cartels along the border, so that's the last place you want a whole lot of just individuals hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's why tear gas just solves it, right? Um, <laughs> just <laughs> oh, just, God, just tear gas them. Phil, what's your sense of all this? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been thinking about the a very different angle on it, which is that I was convinced that the whole deployment of U.S. troops to the border was just an election stunt. Um, <clears throat> it was a winning issue for Trump and for Republicans. You make this sort of display. Uh, but the fact that it's continuing and that he they announced today that they might stay deployed through January now um, I don't know, leads, I suppose it's one of those two things can be true. It can be an election stunt, and it can also be that this is his issue that he really feels um, strongly about. I'm, I'm a little surprised that the sort of continued determination on the Trump administration's part on this issue, but 
Especially all the, apparently, like, all the pushback they got from generals along the way where they said, right. we don't want to do this. Not all that dissimilar to John Roberts where they said, right. the military is an independent institution. We don't want to be compromised as being political. Uh, and, and the we, higher ups went against that advice, including, apparently, behind the scenes, Mattis said this is not a good idea. Although, we, we, publicly, he's saying it's okay. Right. We have Border Patrol agents. We have law enforcement. Yeah. We have lots of people that could be doing this that, that wouldn't be military. And, and the use of tear gas... Uh, in a military context is, um, I was going to say arguably, but I think it's pretty clearly a violation of, of international law. Um, it, it qualifies under, it, it falls under essentially the Chemical Weapon Convention because it's indiscriminate. You you release it and you don't, it's not that you're targeting a person. You can't distinguish between combatants and non-combatants in that situation. So law enforcement uses it um, legally, but the when you start mixing the military in, it also causes all sorts of other issues there and it, yeah, but the military hasn't done anything at the border yet, right? They're right, still right. they're still removed from that. It's it's right. yeah. Um, did you guys see Geraldo was so upset about the tear gassing? Wait, Geraldo's still alive? Yeah, yeah, he's alive, and he was, <laughs> was he was on Fox this week, and it's been the video's been going around. He was just completely upset that the U.S. government would do this. Uh, it didn't mm. make for good viewing because uh, you know it, it was in contrast to some of the others on the show. But uh, he argued that it was a humanitarian violation. Uh, it's it's kind of fascinating to see how. This issue is, is touching individuals. The division about how, like, I mean, it's it's an interesting, you know, we, we've talked about immigration before, and, and it's another example of where, you know, multiple versions of, you know, multiple perceptions of the situation can be accurate. Mm -hmm. But if you see the asylum seekers as uh, people who are entering the border illegal or crossing the border illegally, all this other stuff, then then law enforcement, you know, tear gas to keep them from doing that is just, it's a law enforcement thing. If you view them as children who are fleeing, you know, a crisis situation, then it seems exceptionally cruel, right? And so it, it's it it gets a little bit as a country how we see this problem in very different very different lights. Okay, let's break this down real quick because I feel like the 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 wider public understanding is that they were just tear gassing people all over the place. From my understanding, there was a group of migrants who were going to the San Ysidro, I think, crossing near San Diego, uh, outside of Tijuana, uh, were denied entry because they didn't have the resources to process them all. They went to another part of the fence, tried to get over the fence, and then started hurling rocks at border agents, correct? So, I don't know. Yeah, that's so, my understanding of it. Yeah. So you have people trying to illegally cross the border over the border fence. I don't think they were. I think it was that that sort of in between area, right? Uh -huh. So they had crossed over Mexican fences and were in that middle area, but certainly. And then you brought your children there. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's all I gotta say. I. 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 So there's a my. I again understand the humanitarian aspect of it there is like i i there's a limited amount of sympathy i have in this particular situation i like i it it mm -hmm. i i don't know i'm extremely conflicted about it yeah it's it's a hard issue and asylum cases are are skyrocketing uh, you know, border border crossings are going down but asylum cases are going way 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 right. up uh, it is it is a legitimate challenge for the government right there has to be five thousand people at yeah. the border at this point yeah and my understanding again is that if they reach u.s soil once you reach that point you can claim you can uh request asylum at that point and they have to have a hearing about it correct mm -hmm. 
So if you have 5,000 people there attempting to do the same thing, that's a problem. That's a, just a logistics problem. That's a huge problem that we cannot deal with all at once. The, the question you're, is... Oh, go ahead, Phil. You're, one, you're 100% right. It is a logistics problem, but it's it is also the, the law right so the idea is that you have a, if you reach the border you have a right to apply for asylum right. so it it may be a pain in the ass for the american government but it's it's the law so i mean you could also claim that you know miranda rights are a pain in the ass and it would be way easier if we didn't have to deal with it but we we do right so i mean it, it's i i totally get it i get why you're like why it's like this is overwhelming and that we have to come up with a solution but um, that you can't just approach the solution by saying this is difficult to deal with and so we're going to ignore no. the fact that they have a right to apply for no, asylum. No, absolutely not. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But I, that doesn't mean that you just get carte blanche to cross a sovereign nation's border without any sort of barrier in your way. There has to be some sort of defining factor there. And then half the people, or uh, not half, but a, a large number of the people that are requesting asylum, specifically that family who was in the picture with the kids, were saying, we were requesting asylum because there's no economic opportunity. I forgot if it was Honduras or Guatemala or something like that. And again, that goes back to the definition of what a refugee is. What are the criteria that allows you, that allow you to request asylum? I, I like, I, it, I, I don't know. But that... Again, you're you're not wrong, but that's why you have to have hearings, right? I mean, you can't you're that's, right. that's, you can't just say your argument is stupid, so we're not going to give you a hearing. You're right. That's the point of the hearing. I'm not so saying that you can... shouldn't have hearings. I'm saying there's a limited amount of of migrants that you can process on a daily basis at any of these facilities. I, I mean, it's it's they're overwhelmed as it is, and they can maybe process. I think they said it was a hundred potential request a day at that particular crossing so it's going to take a large amount of time that doesn't mean the alternative is to find another spot and attempt to get over yourself mm -hmm. that's my point mm -hmm. they should absolutely have hearings i agree uh, an interesting thought experiment would be what would the response of some of the previous presidents to this same unprecedented set of facts be uh this is a demand for asylum hearing that dwarfs anything that has happened before. It's coordinated in a sense, at least in the sense that there's hundreds and hundreds of people asking simultaneously and in one place. I don't mean to say it's coordinated by, you know, Vladimir Putin sure. or UFOs or something like George that. Soros. <laughs> but but there, there, are certainly, yeah. there is certainly a measure of coordination here that we have not seen before. And we don't have enough immigration judges to hear these things. So, so the question is, what would prior administrations that may not have been um, as crude sometimes in their language about these sorts of things have done uh, when these caravans or this caravan appeared at the border with more behind it, theoretically? Because it does seem to me that one of the things we have to acknowledge here is if this one works, it is an invitation to other ones. Uh, that it works in the sense that most of them cross the border and either stay as those who get asylum, we know that's very unlikely, or stay because once across the border they dodge the hearing and don't come back. 
it's a hard thing. And, and uh, you know, again, mm -hmm. the crudeness of Trump's language camouflages the difficulty of the problem because it's easy to hate him sure. and, and therefore discount the difficulty of the problem he's trying to solve. But the real, so, Yeah, absolutely. But you look back at what Obama did. Obama was very tough on immigration. Uh, and in some ways, so was Bill Clinton, right? I think, I think you're right that there, there's a partisan angle to this, but that doesn't mean that previous administrations would have been soft on this. Uh, go ahead, folks. Oh, I, I can't. I can't. Go ahead. I'm not suggesting anybody would have been soft or hard. I'm saying I think it would be interesting to right. think through, yeah. given these facts, right. what any previous administration would have done. I, I can't help but feel like this situation is so. I mean, it this is a situation that is beneficial to Trump, right? I mean, it, it is making his point about immigration. So, I, I also can't help but feel like. Uh, you know what you were talking about, Nick. Like we're, there, there might be a shortage of of immigration judges, but people on the border to actually process people at the border, the government managed to put ten thousand troops at the cost of millions of dollars on the border, right? There, there, we we could put other resources towards the actual processing of this problem. Here, yes. And I, I, I can't help but feel like that, that Trump, again welcomes this shortage because or the, you know the the difficulty in processing people because it creates the situation right it, it absolutely it, it it feeds his story about the problems at the border and the need for a, a border wall and the danger of immigration and all these other things this well, group but it would take him five seconds to say appointing immigration judges is a colossally different thing than sending guys that are already sitting in barracks exactly. somewhere. Sure. yeah yeah mm -hmm. so uh, it, it's not as easy as we could send ten thousand soldiers or ten thousand judges but and the, i don't know you're not saying that it is yeah, right. but the, the people at the border who are processing the the, the applicants they're not the, they're not the judges at that point right, right? i mean oh, the, I the amount of money yeah. that's being spent on the military being deployed to the border yeah. to yeah, do yeah. what question i don't i don't mm -hmm. know what they're doing like that's money that could have been spent on resources to actually you know process the paperwork or begin the process of processing the paperwork housing people you know in a way that you can actually I, there there are things that could be done to actually try to tackle it sounds to me like barstool the... politics needs an economist next time around because i'm <laughs> i'm thinking to myself that there's an opportunity cost question here right right uh, th these soldiers are being paid whether they're sitting in uh, mm -hmm. on the border or uh, in nebraska uh, a new set of border guards is an additional expenditure uh, I, I realize there's there's money spent transporting soldiers, but I'm guessing this is a cheaper way of doing it. Yep. Maybe I'm wrong about well, that. I, if I mean, they I can know. do it, right? I mean, so there's certain limitations to what mm -hmm. the soldiers can do, but no, that's it's a fascinating sure. question. But I mean, yeah. then you have the the political angle of it. Yeah, I, yeah. it was. Um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Well, I mean, instead of sending troops, we should just send 5,000 social workers there to you know handle these cases mm -hmm. and just. The 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 one dimensional thinking of that just boggles my. We don't have enough people, enough social workers in our schools, in our public yeah, schools, right. and you're all of a sudden going to snap your fingers and those people. The military are, can do that too, right? Obviously, <laughs> but this is this is these are bureaucrats who need to be trained mm -hmm. in this in processes, or you need to build these facilities, and that takes time and money and infrastructure and the will to do it. And even if we did that, we all agreed that that needed to happen now, the amount of time that it would take to process those individuals and get all of that done would not be fast enough to get those people in, in quote unquote, a timely sure. manner. Well, in some ways, that's why the brilliance of this negotiation with Mexico, if Trump can keep them in Mexico, you don't have to do that, right. right? Now, I think there are certain humanitarian and international human rights problems with that. But yeah, if there, are, if you say you can come in and check in on such a date and have your case heard, right. and then you'll be removed or let in, 
that alleviates a lot of that pressure. Sure. Uh, I don't know how legally that stands up, but I, there is. I understand why the administration is making that case. I think it does stand up. I mean, I think of I think of Clinton with the Haitian refugee crisis, right, right, where he sent the Navy or the Coast Guard out to basically mm-hmm. stop the boats from getting yes. to U.S. soil because yeah. at that point. You know, you don't have to give them any sort of asylum or refugee rights. If you just yes. keep them from getting to your country, right. you are legal and doing whatever you want. They don't touch the yeah. They don't touch the right. land. Right. Yeah, oh, it's not base. This, this is good. I, I know it. it's almost time to move yeah. on. So I just one way to tie these two topics together is life tenure. Uh, if you're wondering what the strongest argument for federal judges having life tenure is, watch the the interchange between Roberts and Trump, and look at the complexity of the uh, immigration problem. You want people protected from politics in the judiciary, irrespective of who appointed them and what their judicial philosophy is. And this is a place where it seems to me life tenure becomes more and more important. That's a great That's a great place to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil, why don't you tell us about the wonderful beer that you're drinking? I want that one <laughs> so actually, bad. Actually, it's perfect. It's just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so I, ha- I had a, a friend, a colleague, who, who gave me this uh, beer. Um, and it is called Safe Space New England IPA. Yeah, it's from Concord it is. Craft Brewing <laughs> Company. The can alone earns it like a, a full, you know, thumbs up. Um, the can as a, you know, it's a it's a unicorn with rainbows and all sorts of stuff. But the, just the idea of Safe Space IPA <laughs> is fantastic. It's really good. Um, it, it was also it was also good. I mean, it's it's you know it's it's IPA classic IPA hoppy. It's pretty citrusy, which I like. Um, you know, I don't know that I can I can. I'm not. My taste is not developed enough to get at all the nuances, other than the, other than to say I enjoyed it. The, the can is fantastic. Um, I highly, I would totally encourage people to go out and find it and buy it. That's great. Well, Tom, Tom brought beer today, and so and why don't you brings the good stuff? Yes, tell us tell us what we've been drinking, Tom, because it's fantastic. We're actually into our second beer, and these are really good ones. The first is called uh, They Who Bear Honey. Uh, a really cool double entendre, Bear, B-E-A-R, because it is an APA with four different hops, honey and blueberry. But this brewer, Hop Butcher for the World, does nothing ever wrong. Mm. So we all agreed as we sipped it before we started that there's a touch of blueberry, a hint of honey, uh, and it's not a fruity, heavy, oh. sweet beer. It's really an APA with just a touch of those two flavors. Mm. I, I think it's terrific it was wonderful it was really yeah, really just, good uh, i was saying light and crisp but still i mean just had heft to it uh mm-hmm. i like that a lot the, it was pretty carbonated too which mm-hmm. was surprising. yeah um, so we move from light and crisp to uh heavy and dark uh bride ordered male is the name of this second beer <laughs> uh, this is silver harbor brewing company in uh michigan um uh, a favorite haunt of mine this is their uh, barrel-aged russian imperial stout uh, it's heavy, but it's. Uh, I see Bill is really digging it, oh, even so though he's smooth. an APA guy. Mm-hmm. This is really, really good beer. This is yeah. This is one of the best I've had. I mean, it, it, there's a certain sweetness to it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not overwhelming. Sometimes the the bourbon gets a bit too much in these. Right, it overpowers the beer. Yes, mm-hmm. not this. This is uh, this is dangerously good. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is this is probably the best imperial stout. What's the difference between a Russian imperial stout and an imperial stout? Is there One's from Russia. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Compared to yeah. politics, guy weighs in. Uh, Imperial is uh, uh, more alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's more of everything is really what Imperial is. So this is, I, I want to say it's about 11.5% alcohol. Yay. Um, and Russian is just a variation. Uh, it, it's oh. typically a sweeter, maltier stout than, say, a Guinness, which is a dry stout. Uh, but this is, 
you know, uh, you're, I'm with you. The yeah. bourbon barrel aged, and we're in bourbon barrel aged season right now. Right. Mm. There's sometimes they're so boozy, and yeah. yes. uh, you, you feel like you're not drinking beer. This is beer with a hint of, of bourbon. Mm. This is Who, spectacular. Who's the brewery on that one? Silver Harbor. Silver Harbor. Yeah, really good. Oh, that was great. So good. Um, yeah, if you guys want to check out the beers that we try, uh, we put them up on Untapped. You can download that on iOS and Android. We are uh, Barstool Politics, so look for all the things that we try and the reviews that we attach to them. Speed round, Nick. Yep. All right, let's jump in. So you don't need a climate to enjoy these amazing Black Friday specials. So on Black Friday, the federal government released a long-awaited report on the effects of climate change. And let's just say it's not looking good for anyone who wants, who's interested in enjoying the climate past about 2030. Uh, the report's authors, who represent numerous federal agencies, say they are more certain than ever that climate change poses a severe threat to America's health and pocketbooks, as well as to the country's infrastructure and natural resources. It's hard not to contrast the report's extreme sense of urgency and alarm with the more relaxed approach the Trump administration, and to be honest, nearly every previous presidential administration, has taken to the problem of climate change. Problem of climate change. As the recent fires in California suggest, unless we're committed to a more rigorous policy of raking, uh, this is a problem we're likely to feel much more directly in the future. I bought mine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Nick, you're the youngest among us, and I've always expressed a deep frustration with government and society in general, this inability to see climate change as an existential threat. So my question for you is, did you find any good deals on Black Friday? Oh, man. <laughs> I found so. I bought, like, socks and body wash. <laughs> I bought some great stuff. I bought, like, nothing. Going on any, any climate change-related gifts? No. Oh, okay. No. Uh, I didn't buy my gas mask yet. Um, I haven't started getting the... the Japanese surgical masks either with like the panda smile on them or panda nose. Those could be helpful. Yep. Yeah. Need those. Uh, this is, yeah. I mean, you pretty much said it. This is one of maybe three issues where I think not only this administration, pretty much every previous administration and the generation that is in power right now um, needs to be removed and replaced by people who are going to have to <laughs> have to live in the have climate. to live with it yeah yes. I, I, it's it's so frustrating to me in the sense that most of what we talk about everything that we talk about in this podcast is politicized in some way shape or form this seems like something that is so fundamental and so universal well i understand there are differing opinions as to the severity of what's happening my viewpoint is why would you take the fucking chance? Like, make, make you know, make uh, economic prosperity and, and, and business and progress out of it instead of making it into this thing that could potentially have dire, detrimental, detrimental consequences, not only for you, but for your kids and their kids and everybody that comes after you. I I like I don't I I I'm I don't want to take the I can't talk I don't want to take the chance. It's like, the Russian imperial yeah. stout. <laughs> like it just it frustrates me to no end that we continue to talk about this. And realistically, when people talk about the worst case scenario of this, I don't necessarily believe that myself. But I know that there's a severe problem, and that alone. The fact that there's a, a significant lack of just the scientific understanding of members of Congress and the administration, lobbyists, it's just, I, like, I, I can't deal with it anymore. Yeah. And something needs to fundamentally change. Phil, climate change is going to be much better in New Hampshire, right? 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I I agree, Nick. Like, this seems like a, it, it just seems like an obvious thing. But I, I also, I don't know. It, it is frustrating to me. Uh, but there's also an element of human nature involved in this, right? In that there are short-term costs for long-term benefits. Like, I, you know, I, I, I it, it's easy for me to be critical of, of uh, governmental policy on the environment. But you know, I still drive to work when it's a mile and I should be riding my bike or walking and stuff like that. Right. So there, I understand the, the, you know, the, it's this kind of collective, collective action problem. But, um, the point of having said that the point of government is to help us overcome collective action problems. Right. That's, uh, that's why government should be, you know, more effective in, in this role. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what I don't I don't have anything to add. I, I I am equally sort of flabbergasted by our inability to do anything about it or unwillingness. It's not inability, unwillingness. Yes. Tom, what's your sense of all this? A bit of perspective here. Yeah. Boys. Yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> we need it. <laughs> this report, as I understand it, I've not read all 1300 pages, <laughs> takes the absolute bleakest possible set of assumptions <clears throat> on population growth, which it says is going to be greater than it probably will be. Uh, minimal technical change, minimal energy efficiency changes, uh, extraction of hydrocarbons that are vastly beyond what we know we have uh, available. Um, if you input really bleak scenarios, then you output really dire consequences. Yep. And uh, I'm not a scientist and don't pretend mm -hmm. to be, but it seems to me uh, some basic cost-benefit analysis needs to get done and some honesty about the degree to which these assumptions are true uh, is. Uh, it, a more middle-of-the-road set of assumptions would not have produced a frightening report. And I think part of the reason that people don't react to this anymore is they're tired of being fear-mongered mm -hmm. about it. Uh, people say the environment's important to them. At the same time, they say, so is my pocketbook. Mm -hmm. So talk honestly to me about it. And, I, and I, there's, there's ways in which this report sounds less than honest to me, given the fact that it's adopted the absolute most dire set of, and can't even produce at that point mm -hmm. more than about a half a or a five hundred billion dollars in costs. Remember that we're a four trillion mm -hmm. dollar budget a year, right? So, mm -hmm. so I, 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 I mean, <laughs> I think things are fairly dire. But I think the point, one of the points you make in there, ties into what Nick said, which I yeah. think is uh, is about how we talk about it, right. and we're getting to the point where you know, climate change, uh, issues with climate change are going to start to tally up in the pocketbook yeah. side of things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those are more abstract tallies, right? It has to do with, with infrastructure problems and with natural disasters and stuff like that, as opposed to, you know, higher taxes or higher costs for the products we buy. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that's part of it is in, instead of, I think it's important to talk about these issues in a large scale kind of moral you know, argument about mm -hmm. the environment and being stewards of the earth. But I think it's also yeah. important to talk about it in a more, you know, down, like straightforward, here are the costs, here's why this is, you know, the military yes. talks a lot about the the um, the environment and puts the environment high on its list of priorities yeah. because of security concerns with clean water and population movements. And mm -hmm. we, I mean, we could have you know, more, I don't know, we could actually engage in some of those conversations and bring people in, make it more clear about why this matters to to people um, and we're not particularly good about that it, it feels to me that there are the, the technocrats are actually having some of these conversations so the defense right. you're absolutely right phil the defense yeah. department is now 
adjusting what they see as a national security issue based on climate change, saying this is going to affect immigration, uh, asylum cases, all of these things, and and, and conflict uh, in terms of internal dynamics. They're thinking about that as well, forest fires, all of that. If you could take that technocratic conversation out and, and have it at a broader level, I think people might say, here's a reasonable solution. Right. You're right. You know, we should be... In terms of the forest, we absolutely have to think about restructuring them. And it's not just this broader climate change argument. It's also about where people are living, mm-hmm. how we're handling the forest. I mean, there's a lot of things could be happening. And, and these, it feels to me like these wouldn't be hard decisions to make, right? There, there's real meaningful change we could make that, that wouldn't be political, but we, we just don't make those choices. Uh, right. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's frustrating. Dumb. Yeah. Hate it. You know what's not dumb, Nick? I, nothing. Free speech. Okay. All right. That one. Next topic. Okay. That one's dumb. Dumb. <laughs> All right. So given that we have Tom today, we couldn't pass on the opportunity to talk about free speech. And luckily, the White House and CNN reporter Jim Acosta have provided us with a case to kick around. It all started November 7th when Acosta asked President Trump several questions and wouldn't hand his microphone back to an intern. Trump called Acosta rude and said White and the White House revoked his press pass temporarily, citing his conduct at the event. CNN subsequently sued the White House over the revocation, arguing Acosta's First and Fifth Amendment's rights, rights had been violated. A federal court in the District of Columbia agreed and ordered the White House to restore Acosta's pass credentials for 14 days. The White House then reversed course by fully restoring his press pass, but announcing it had created new rules for press conferences. The rules specify that each journalist will be permitted to ask a single question before yielding the floor, and follow-up questions will be allowed, quote, at the discretion of the president. The policy also defined yielding the floor as physically surrendering the microphone to the White House staff. But that was my favorite part. Uh, this is this to me. This is fascinating, Tom. What was? What do you make of this? What should we think? You you, you love free speech almost as much as you love the Constitution. Uh, I, well, I'm my curious. friend, those two things are synonymous. With yes. One another, okay. So as, as well, you know. <laughs> I think we should just pause for a moment and reflect on Donald Trump calling somebody rude. Uh, the the. the Beauty of that is just. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, let's say this: the uh, the the judicial finding here was not based on the First Amendment; it was based on the Fifth. Um, so that the uh, CNN argument was that due process was violated, and the judge here sort of wisely, I think, stayed away from the First Amendment question, and decided it entirely on uh, due process grounds, which were uh, there's got to be rules, mm-hmm. or you can't take a person's press pass away. <laughs> Uh, there either were rules and you didn't follow them, or there weren't rules. So the White House has made them. And I, and I think what's happening here is uh, a dare to CNN yep. and Acosta to break the rules again and try and invoke the First Amendment argument, which I think they'll almost certainly lose. Uh, Who will lose that? CNN. CNN, okay. There's not a First Amendment right in the White House to hold the microphone for as long as you want and ask anything you'd like. Uh, without interruption. Uh, I'm the free speech, believe me. Sure. But but that is not the First Amendment. It's not freedom of the press, which is a separate First Amendment right. Uh, This doesn't even interfere with the press's ability to do their job, if we're all serious with each other Mm -hmm. here. Uh, Talk about kabuki with Roberts and Trump. There's a little bit of kabuki here with Acosta and Trump as well. Mm -hmm. So... um, I hate to minimize something that you built up with such energy, but (laughs) I just don't see a First Amendment issue here. There's a Fifth Amendment issue, and it's solved. If he follows the rules, he stays. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Can I ask a clarifying question? 
I get the First Amendment <laughs> argument. I, I totally get the the idea that even if there is a, you know, if it became about that, it's not that Jim Acosta has, it's not that every individual has a right to ask the president questions and whatnot. How How is it a due, in my mind, I think of due process as applying more to sort of legal proceedings mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, the, the rules of a club, which this feels more like. Mm-hmm. And I know that we're talking about the press and, and its involvement in the White House, but how, like, can you talk a little bit more about how, why is this a due process question? Essentially, the judge said that Acosta is being deprived visibility, a property right, uh, to do his job. And that in this context, there should have been some procedure to make a judgment about whether that was being done arbitrarily and capriciously, or whether there was some rules that could be applied to other people in the same uh, context. Um, so it's, it's akin to uh, trial due process in the sense that you ought to have rules, they ought to be followed, and they ought to apply to everybody. The problem was it doesn't appear that there were any rules because there hasn't been a necessity for them. Mm-hmm. People yielded the microphone, you know, after a question or two, and, and things moved on. Uh, Trump's clearly grandstanding, but I think it's not inappropriate to say so as a cost. Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, so, so the due process argument produced the rules. So now the question is, will he intentionally violate them uh, have his press pass revoked and then say, well, I have a First Amendment right that has been violated here, either press or speech. And, and I think CNN wants no part of that because I think they know they'll lose. All right, I'm going to put my Tom Cavanaugh hat on to ask Tom <laughs> Cavanaugh a question about the First Amendment. So it, it seems to me that part of being in a democracy is is asking truth to power, right? So to have the press to have access, reasonable access to the president. And to not have that administration set rules that prevent or create a chilling effect, right? And, and my fear in all of this is that what Trump is trying to do is he's trying to create a chilling effect where reporters are going to be afraid to ask questions or follow-up questions because their press pass may be taken away, because they're not they're not following the rules. And doesn't that have an effect of chilling speech if you create rules that prevent asking real questions for the president? No. Why not? Well, (laughs) the rules aren't content-based. So the president didn't set up rules that said, if I like your question, you can keep your press pass. If I don't like your question, you can't. They're procedural rules. You can ask one. If the president gives you uh, leave to, you can ask a follow-up. This is is conventional press conference uh, uh, rules. And um, pass the microphone on thereafter. So there, there isn't a content-based restriction here. I'm only calling on a particular kind of reporter or, uh, or that sort of thing. Does that make sense? It does, but, but presidents don't answer that first question. So, here's the, so I ask a question. The president doesn't answer that. Don't I have the right to say, you didn't answer that question, Mr. President, without fear of having my press pass taken away? Well, but go backwards and say this. Some presidents don't have press conferences That's at true. all. You're right. So, yeah. so we're not talking about uh, a public forum here, which is obligatory. That we're talking about a privilege, essentially, rather mm-hmm. than a right. And that's why I think they'd lose the First Amendment claim. I'm with you. Yeah. I, I think the pres- <coughs> I, I, presidents ought to hold regular, robust, long, interactive press conferences. I completely agree with you about that. But it's a matter of discretion, not, sure. not a matter of right. Could, mm-hmm. if, if the rules were enforced inconsistently, could it then become a free speech issue? So if... If over time what happens is that reporters who are not Trump favorable don't get follow up or get cut off and Fox News always gets follow up after follow up after follow up, could they then argue that the rules or the 
the way the rules are being enforced violates a, a freedom of a, a First Amendment issue. Yes. I mean, would that be Absolutely. a First Amendment Absolutely. at that point, or would it be a fit? It wouldn't I, be. Due I think process. it would be. I think it would be both. The, both. The, the failure to apply the rules in a fair and reasonable way, and the use of the rules to deprive certain okay. members of the press corps uh, of their freedom of the press rights. Mm. I think that's really mm. what we're after here: freedom <laughs> of the press rather than freedom of speech, sure. or, or at yeah. least conflating the two in a in, in a way that includes the press right. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Jim Acosta is a grandstanding dick. That's what it comes down to. But there's a history. I, I, I totally on. agree. But there's a there's a <laughs> that's history enough. of that. Sam Donaldson. I mean, there's a long history away. of this, and I, in I'm some joking. ways, you need that at, in the White House press corps. You need that that individual to push the president. And I, I totally agree. I agree. Acosta is doing this for his own benefit, but it, there's a value in it. Too. I agree. Yeah. yeah, him in particular, and that exchange that they had was was bizarre. Oh. I I I. It was bizarre. Well, and it wasn't journalism. No, no. That it's it seems to me is important. This was Jim Acosta editorializing, right? Mm -hmm. Not pursuing truth, to use the phrase CNN used among others in its pleadings. Mm -hmm. I saw Sam Donaldson. He did an interview in, in the, the aftermath of all this. He looks the same. <laughs> Just his hair is like totally white now. It was oh. it was weird. <laughs> I mean, he's he's the same guy. But all right, let's jump to let's jump to Russia and Ukraine on Monday. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Can you read the title? Okay. Yeah. All right. So this is Putin. Yeah. Bitch, the Ukraine is mine. Thank you. You can move <laughs> on now. <laughs> okay. So a lot happened on Monday. All right. So Ukrainian lawmakers voted to introduce martial law in the border area with Russia after Russia seized three Ukrainian Navy ships and detained 24 sailors in a key waterway that holds strategic importance for both countries. Ukraine said two of its small gunboats, small gunboats, and one tugboat. What's a tugboat doing out there? Were attacked by Russian naval forces Sunday after entering the Kerch Strait um, during an emergency US, UN Security Council meeting. Uh, to defuse rising tensions after Sunday's confrontation, U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley called the incident, quote, yet another reckless Russian escalation and demanded that the Kremlin release the soldiers, quote, this is no way for a law-abiding civilized nation to act. Well, she's talking about Russia. So, all right, Haley said, adding this was an outrageous violation of Ukraine's sovereignty. Uh, Nikki Haley had to know that any kind of talk of this is only going to encourage Putin. Phil. What's your sense of the situation and the likelihood of escalation? And why is Putin so power hungry? Um, so as, as I thought about this story and, and you know, I, I haven't seen as many of the details as, as I probably should, but um, I, I, I keep coming back to the Saudi Arabia situation. And, mm -hmm. I, and I feel like the, the Saudi Arabia, the, the, you know, the execution of, of Khashoggi, because I think what you see there is a country who's kind of testing the limits, right? So Saudi Arabia is trying to see what they can get away with. And I feel like that's exactly what Putin's doing here, right? So Putin has, you know, for a long time made it clear that he's, he, he does not, you know, he's, he doesn't put a whole lot of, you know, import on um, the sovereignty of his East European neighbors, right? <laughs> I mean, these are countries that were a part of the Soviet Union. He's, you know, he, he, harkens back to the age of you know the russian empire um he's a nationalist at heart i think if if you didn't you know if there wasn't a lot of international pressure otherwise he would have his fingers in the baltic states you know and and so i think this is just an example of that he has he has screwed with ukraine and ukrainian sovereignty for years now right i mean this is just more of the same and it feels like it's it's that it's just kind of pushing the limits he's kind of always testing to see how far he can go and what he can get away with 
why now though? Like he knows he annexed part of the country. Like I, I it seems like a, a, a weird time and a weird place to test the limits of something that he's already gone way beyond the limits on. Well, it wasn't that long ago that they finished the bridge from Crimea to Russia proper. So mm-hmm. I, I do wonder whether that might have been the motivating factor where now they they can argue that there is there's basically a connection between the mainland and Crimea. That's interesting. And now but but I think I think Phil is right that this is it's done. It's now time to test the international will and see what the response is going to be. Hmm. And and in one way it is an escalation over what happened in Ukraine before because the Russians pretended at least to not be involved when right. they were there before, right? Yes, so the green they men. weren't doing it out in the open as Russia whereas this is this is, you know, Russia openly challenging um, Ukraine over sovereignty and military issues. Mm-hmm. And my favorite part was that Putin just parks uh, this massive tanker right across the waterway. I mean, he's, he's not even trying. He's like, this is where this is closed to you now. <laughs> so I, I'm curious to see the, the Security Council kicked it around for a while, but nothing came out of it. Obviously, Russia has a veto there, uh, even though Nikki Haley was uh, very forceful in her critique. Trump has not been. He did say that maybe he would cancel the meeting, but he hasn't pushed back. He's not going to. No, and I mean, I think Europe has been grumbling, but I, I, I kind of wonder whether this works for Putin. I, I don't know if the United States is not leading an effort to organize Europe and the rest of uh, you know the world. It, this, this sort of falls by the wayside, and Putin probably gets what he wants here. And I think that could be an answer to the why now. I mean, not necessarily this particular moment, but in general— you have divisions between NATO allies about whether the state of NATO and whether they would come together and how much is there, you know, how much will is there to sort of work together to contain Russia. And this seems like a way to, even if even if he doesn't plan to take it any further, just to kind of continue to, you know, jab those those barbs into NATO in some ways, just to point out the divisions, I think, is to his advantage. I, I totally agree. NATO condemned this. But didn't do anything about it. So, I mean, it, right. you could hardly find the story where NATO said this is unacceptable. Right. Uh, and then NATO left it and dropped it there. So, uh, yeah, this is this is Putin at his best. I, what I, could NATO do? At his worst. Right. I, I mean, in yeah. the end, what are they going to do? Well, the, Even if they had a response, I, I, you know, what? Right, because Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Right. Yeah, so there's very little that they could do. I guess you could... You could so there's a strategic interest for keeping that waterway open, right? If Putin can close that waterway, that is to the detriment of Ukraine and potentially detrimental to Europe. So you could you could argue that that accesses a, a national security interest, but but it's not. It's I mean it's not in the same as as the the Straits of Iran. I mean that's a different dynamic. It just seems really brazen, needlessly brazen. It's um, Poroshenko mm-hmm. in Ukraine who is realistically fairly close to Russia and Putin, correct? No, he's the guy that doesn't like Russia. So Poroshenko oh, yeah, does not. Right. So yeah, he, got, he doesn't. Now, but what's interesting about that is he's up for re-election. Mm. And so that's, he's instituting martial law. And when he institutes martial law, it potentially could allow him to delay the presidential election, which he is not looking you know, very good in. So there's, there's so many domestic elements to this. I think Putin's pursuing this for domestic reasons and international reasons. Ukraine is pursuing it. Or Poroshenko is pursuing it for political reasons as well. With um, martial law, do we see some sort of conflict in the near future? That seems to me like the first step towards a legitimate conflict, cross-borders conflict. 
Is that something that do you think is in the cards? <clears throat> I don't know if either side benefits from that. But it's not... Anytime you enter a situation like this, oftentimes your hand is forced. So even if, you, if, if Russia or Ukraine doesn't want this to escalate, mm -hmm. if one side does something, the other will be forced to respond. So that's... Given that, it's possible. But I think both sides would prefer to avoid that. So we'll, we will see. Okay. Um, yeah. well, and the more you do this sort of thing, the 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 greater the odds that some yes. idiot fires his gun and, yes. and it mm -hmm. just unravels from there. So Quote, unquote, or... fires his gun. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump to the let's jump back to the United States and and uh, Paul Manafort. So idiot. Yes. In a court filing on Monday, again, everything Monday, Robert Mueller's special counsel's office said that Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman, repeatedly lied to federal investigators in breach of a plea agreement he signed two months ago. In the filing, Robert Mueller's team stated the lies uh, were about a variety of subject matters uh, and that, re that relieves them, the special counsel, of, of all promises made to him in the plea agreement. Manafort's lawyers responded that Manafort believes he has provided truthful information. I love that. As long as he believes it. <laughs> That's right. This is a bizarre development, and I, I'm not sure what Manafort is up to here. Why might he continue to lie after he's got a plea deal? What does this suggest about Manafort as a witness for Mueller moving forward? Tom, help me understand what's going on here. <laughs> I can imagine what this believes he gave truthful information means. But, but let's start by saying this. Plea agreements are treated like standard contracts both sides have performance obligations when one side violates it they're said to be in breach and the other side's performance obligations generally go away Mueller's argument that he can now go beyond uh, what he would otherwise have done I think uh, bears some scrutiny mm -hmm. uh, note that Mueller did not give any specif uh, specific examples of the lies and mm -hmm. he said he'd be back in 14 days with those. Uh, this gives me pause because one could imagine that what Mueller is doing at this point uh, is leveraging uh, a guy he thinks hasn't told him everything he knows. And this is the last way to put the screws down hard before you sentence Manafort. Hmm. Interesting. Now, I'm just throwing this yeah, out as, a, yeah. as maybe Manafort lied through his teeth. Because sentencing is but, soon, But Manafort right? doesn't know what lies it is alleged he told. So Mueller has said, you lied, you breached, now I'm going to ask for a thousand years in prison. And uh, the response from Manafort is, well, I didn't lie. I think I've told the truth relative to the questions you've asked. And Mueller's answer is, well, I'm going to tell you what you lied about later mm -hmm. after you've had a chance to stew in the juices of the possibility <laughs> of a thousand years in jail. Uh, of course, yeah. I'm making up a thousand years in jail, but... But the idea is that, that you're working as hard as you possibly can to extract everything you possibly can from a hostile witness about a hostile potential defendant, the president. Mm -hmm. So it might be that this is just an effort in these closing days of the investigation. And I think a lot of people think we're winding up because mm -hmm. he's moving to sentence people. And that's typically a signal that, that you're at the end of what you can get from them. This might just be a way to squeeze the last couple of drops of juice out of the fruit. Because <laughs> he's afraid. And, yeah. Is there a chance that, he, <clears throat> that Mueller's not saying what he lied about because the evidence or whatever information he has that points to, to Manafort lying is information that he doesn't want public at this point because it's tied to another Absolutely. indictment or some other thing that's coming? Absolutely. That's a, that's a plausible uh, uh, an explanation as the one I just gave. But... 
uh, if you're in Manafort's position, and, and I realize this is not the most sympathetic guy living in America today, uh, <laughs> you lied. What did I lie about? Well, I yeah. can't tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, how do I defend myself? Well, you can't. But if you don't, then I'm going to make sure that the sentence you get uh, goes over the top. And his response is, man, I lie about a lot of stuff. you got to be more specific. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. What, what about this element? That's due process, Bill. <laughs> the Fifth Amendment says you got to tell a guy what he lied about. <laughs> what about this? So so they, they agreed, the, the special counsel in Manafort agreed to the plea agreement. And after which... Trump, uh, Manafort's lawyers and Trump's lawyers continued to have conversations, apparently without informing the special counsel. This was not in violation of the plea agreement, apparently, but the special counsel did not like this. Is this is this common? I mean, I, or, or what should we think about the fact that Manafort is still having conversations with the president's lawyers after getting this plea agreement? That he's in the worst of all possible positions. Yeah, he's got Mueller on one side. Uh, he has Trump on the other. The only real out for him is a pardon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's already done a plea deal and maybe said things to Mueller that are harmful to Trump, but Trump doesn't know what Manafort <laughs> said to Mueller. Uh, you can't, this is like a he's novel, isn't sides. it? It, it <laughs> really is. So, well, I, I, and if I was his lawyer, I'd be doing the same thing, right? For the hope of a pardon. For the hope of something. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe setting him up for a commutation later. I mean, who knows? Uh, but Manafort's in a really bad spot. He doesn't know what he's lied about. Sure. He doesn't know what Trump's going to do. He doesn't know whether Mueller's going to do something relative to Trump. He's got to wait 14 days to get a detailed <laughs> answer to why it is that the plea agreement's been breached in the first place. I mean, again, I realize he's not the most sympathetic guy in the world, but this is a really difficult spot. I think his lawyers ought to talk to anybody uh, that can help him. And if Mueller didn't want that to happen, he should have put it in the plea agreement. Right. Absolutely, yeah. There's another element to this, too, which is that he's not just stuck between between Mueller and Trump. He's also got I mean, that was the other story that you didn't mention. Yes. But yeah. there were reports this week that he met with Julian Assange mm-hmm. and and uh, prior to the the, the leak of uh, Clinton's emails or whatever, basically that he he knew what was going on, that that yeah. the Russia that Russia was leaking this information or was planning to leak this information to to um, WikiLeaks. Manafort's all messed up, mixed up with Russian. He's messed up, but he's mixed up with with like elements of the Russian government and the Russian mob too. Like yes, there there are other elements too that you should be even maybe more concerned about than uh, than Donald Trump or Robert Mueller. That's a great point, right? I mean, so he could be worried about spending the rest of his life in jail. He could be worrying about a pardon. He could be worried about Russian Russians killing him or his family, right? right? All of those things. So, yeah. Why does he continue to lie after taking a plea? Let's assume he, I mean, yeah. maybe he didn't, but assume he did, that that, uh, that Mueller's right, and he continued to lie after taking a plea deal, right? But the stakes might be higher for him than just whether he's going, you know, whether Mueller puts him to prison or whether or not uh, Trump, sure. I, you know, I don't, that's all stuff. I don't know. I don't know what's going well, on I, with him. But that, he's, and one of the interesting questions is, are these lies of commission or omission? That is to say, has Mueller uncovered something that directly contradicts a thing said by Manafort? Or does Mueller have reason to believe Manafort knew a thing and didn't tell him that? Mm-hmm. Uh, 14 days is going to be, a re- so next yeah. December when we're talking yeah. about it, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens because Man- uh, Mueller's got to come back uh, and finish this argument. Here's another thing. So I think there's one more possible explanation that that Manafort is an idiot, not an idiot, he's a smart man, <laughs> but that he's, throughout his life, he's been able to think he is, I get the sense from Manafort that he always thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Yep. 
And so my question for Tom is, is this common where clients... People think they're the smartest person in the room? (laughs) (laughs) Ever been to a faculty meeting? (laughs) Where clients will will make a a poor decision, even though it's not in their own interest, right? Because they feel like they can work their way out of all that. So I, I, I wonder whether that might also be possible. Is it that he's just miscalculated here? He thought he could work his way out and now is stuck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Remember the case we talked about, uh, boy, it's been almost a year ago, the guy whose lawyer says, I want to do one thing, and he yes. says, I'm going yes. to do another. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and the court says, you got a right to do whatever you like, but you probably ought to listen to your lawyer. Lawyers run into this all the time, clients who know more than they do. Yeah. That, uh, my guess is doctors do, and accountants do, and people with specialized Professors. knowledge everywhere do. <laughs> yes. What's that? Professors. Professors do, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So uh, Manafort's painted himself into a corner. This is going to be an interesting thing to see play out. This is oh, why, God. one, I always tell the truth, and two, <laughs> I don't get mixed up with the Russian mob. Yeah. <laughs> Those are my rules for living life. <laughs> this is, this is right. a good good life philosophy. Good rules. We, we, we got to cut it. All right, final final topic. All right. So on, <laughs> we, can't, we can't do this real quick, real quick? All right, yeah, go All right, real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, on Monday at a rally in Tupelo. I don't tape, by the way. Oh, it's, oh, I forgot to give you that. You okay, did. okay, all right, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Uh, we don't have time for the tape anyhow, Nick. All right. Uh, so, so for the candidate Cindy Hyde Smith, Trump noted that he looked a lot like Elvis. Right? Uh, he specifically said, uh, "Gentlemen, Michael." Okay. So my question for you: Trump said he looks like Elvis, and when he was younger, he looked like Elvis. So quickly, let's go around the table. Uh, for our listeners, I will post pictures of Trump looking like Elvis, as well as Trump looking like an ear of corn. And Biff Tannen. Uh, so, but Tom, do you think, does Trump look like Elvis? Young Trump. Yeah, and I'm reminded of the Bill Maher stick where he could also be the spawn of an orangutan <laughs> yes. that led to the bet. Prove that you're not. Yes. <laughs> Phil, do you think Trump looks like Elvis? Because I'm going to be, I'm on board. I think Trump, I think young Trump is, is Elvis. It is not something that ever crossed my mind before, but as I look at the picture, I can see similarities. I, 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 I the Biff Tannen and the Ear of yeah. Corn pictures are even better than the Elvis picture. We'll get them all up. Nick, where are you yeah, at? He absolutely looks like young Elvis, but he looks way more like old Biff Tannen yeah. than he does young Elvis. It's, it's uncanny. He could fit into that movie perfectly. He needs to do just a reenactment of that. I would watch a reboot like that. With the president in his, <laughs> his old Biff Tannen. <laughs> All right, thanks, Nick. Oh my God, <laughs> the things we talk yes. about. Um, it's uh, it's doing the thing, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a hundred episodes. Hundred episodes. How the hell did we do that? I witty banter, Nick. Yeah. Witty banter. For, Wait, I, I'm here for the hundredth episode. Yes, the hundredth episode. Hundredth oh episode. my goodness. So yes. So we started this. <laughs> With one USB microphone in the center of the table, Phil was talking through a speaker that I had plugged into the computer going into the microphone. It was just bad. Do you remember when the the ambulances would come by? Every day. And we had a listener who was listening apparently in the shower. Yes. And the the alarms were so loud that she jumped out of the shower. (laughs) Oh, they must be trying to get in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, anyways, yeah, we, we greatly appreciate the support. And, you know, we've grown tremendously over the past year. Um, Tom, Suzanne, all the guests that we've had, you know, over the past 100 episodes, it's um, it's been phenomenal. And uh, we hope to keep doing it for, for a long time. Um, in the meantime, if you want to know uh, what we're doing, uh, have questions about anything, um, 
There it is. Um, beer suggestions, uh, anything you want us to talk about, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, Untapped that you can download on iOS and Android. We put our uh, uh, beers that we try and the reviews up on there. Uh, and then the podcast itself, uh, check out iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, SoundCloud. Um, review us, share us, you know, like us through there. Um, we always appreciate new listeners. Um, so thank you guys for that. And then Predict It, like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, uh, is a pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. Uh, so if you open up a $20 account, you uh, wow, you will receive uh, a $20 match on that. So $40 to use on Predicted. Lots of fun, really informative. Definitely check it out. Um, use the promo link, not code, uh, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, and get your free money. Um, it's a good stocking stuffer. It is a good stocking oh, stuffer. That's, that's a really good idea. <laughs> yes. I didn't even think of that. All right, you're going to do that for like the next three weeks. <laughs> Anything else, guys? This is fun. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thank always, you so much, Always Tom. have a lot of fun with you. Always on. a pleasure. Yeah. We will see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers, Bye. guys. <laughs>